The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., 10.30 a.m., or 12 p.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. So Rebecca and I have two little ones, a a three-year-old and a one-year-old. And our oldest, our, our, our daughter, is starting to kind of, you know, she's just about to turn three. She's two turning three, so she's starting to push the line to find out where that line is. And she's pushing it to discover who is really in charge in our house, something that I'm still not completely sure about, to be honest. I just know it's not me. That's the only thing I know for sure, okay? And so she's pushing the line to see who's really in charge, and I, I think that she's now understanding, okay, mom and dad are in charge. And so in her mind, I've watched as she started to put this together. She says, okay, they're in charge of me. And then she's looking at her little brother. And I think now in her mind, she's saying, so that must mean I'm in charge of you. And so we've seen her, she's going around, she's starting to really mother her little brother, his name is Nehemiah, she's starting to mother him, and she tries to take him, and she tries to pick him up, which gives me a heart attack almost every time she does that, and you know, she's going around telling him things to do and not to do, and it kind of hit a point where one day recently, I was in the other room, and I hear him playing in the other room, and I hear my three-year-old say this to her younger brother, Nehemiah, if you do that again, you're choosing a timeout. Wow, that sounds really familiar, okay? (laughs) And she's turned into this little disciplinarian, okay? And she's learning, okay, I must be in charge of him. So we're trying to work all those dynamics because that's actually, that's a complicated dynamic. The chain of command is a complicated dynamic in in our lives. Maybe even you've got work issues you're trying to sort through right now or someone is ordering you around. You're like, why are you doing that? Or maybe there's family issues where someone's trying to to assert authority and trying to force you to do something that you don't want to do. Maybe there's, I mean, the chain of command thing in all the spheres of our life with all of our relationships, that can be complicated. And I look at my kids, I look at Scarlett and Nehemiah, and I say, okay, this is an issue that they're going to work out for the rest of their lives in all the spheres of relationships they have. And that actually includes our relationship with God. So we're in this series called Road Trip, and there's an encounter that one individual has on their journey, on their life's journey, they have this encounter with Jesus, and the whole issue boils down to authority, and it plays out in a really fascinating way. And this is going to be a very important encounter for us to process, because a lot of times in our relationship with God, if you're here and you believe in God, now you might be here and you, you say, look, I'm not even sure that I, I don't know sure whether I believe in God or not. And if that's where you're at, man, I'm so glad that you're here. I, I, I hope you feel welcome. I hope you feel comfortable here because we, we are honored that you want to journey, journey with us right where you're at and asking some of the tough questions that you have. So glad that you're here. But if you're here and you say, look, I, I believe in God, you probably say, okay, I believe that God is, is almighty. I know that he, is, he, he has total control over everything. But that belief is sometimes different than realizing He is in command of me. And that there's a chain of command here. And how that plays out in our lives is not as easy as it sounds. So this is an important passage for us to look at. We're looking in the book of Luke 
in chapter 7. It's going to be up here on the screens. Um, If you have a Bible or Bible app, you can turn there. It's also in your bulletin as well in the listening guide. Luke chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 1. We're going to look at this story of an encounter that someone has with Jesus. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Here's what it says. After he had finished all these sayings, it's talking about Jesus. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is this small uh, town in more rural part of Israel, and this is really Jesus' home base during his ministry. He kind of returns here, and this is where he lives. So he enters, he enters into Capernaum. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Now, this is a pretty interesting dynamic. Let's just pause here and unpack the setting and what's happening in this story because this is kind of a unique situation. Jesus has just been teaching. He enters back into Capernaum. This is where he's been staying. This is where he's going to be staying. He enters back into Capernaum, and the elders of this village, that's like the guys who are in charge, the leaders, the leaders of this town approach Jesus. And they tell him about this Roman soldier. He's a centurion. They say, hey, there's the centurion here. He has a servant that's sick. It's a very dear part of his household. He's sick. He's suffering. He's at the point of death. And the centurion sent us, this is the leaders of this town, to come talk to you and to ask you to heal his servant. Now, this is a little bit new. Because typically when someone needs someone, when someone needs Jesus to heal themselves or a friend of theirs, they come right to Jesus, right? Typically if you've ever heard a story of Jesus, they come, maybe they throw themselves at Jesus' feet or they plead with him urgently, but that's not what the centurion does. He gets the leaders of the town, he uses his pull, gets the leaders of this town to come to Jesus to ask him to heal his servant. Now, this is, there's many things that are, that are fascinating about this. For starters, it's the fact that the elders, the leaders of this town would agree to it. Okay, this is a Roman soldier. Think about that dynamic. This isn't just the fact that Capernaum, well, it's just kind of a diverse community. You've got Jewish people, you've got Romans, they live together. That's not the scenario. Remember, the Romans are an occupying army. Remember, they're going to be walking through Capernaum. They're going to have to go to the tax collector. They're going to be taxed. And it's not just taxes that go to Israel. They're going to be taxed that's going to also go to the Roman Empire. Okay, there's tension between the Jews and the Romans constantly. In fact, in just about a generation, in about 30 years from this point in time, the Jewish people are going to rise up and try and overthrow the Romans. And it's going to be a very violent thing that happens about 35, 40 years later. I mean, there is constant tension between the Romans and the Jewish people. And this centurion has been able to get the leaders of this town to go talk to Jesus. How has he gotten them to do this? 
well, he, has, he made a sizable donation to the building of their synagogue, which had been probably, probably the largest building in that town, and he had made a sizable donation. And so they're kind of on his good side, and they go and ask Jesus to heal his servant. Okay, but there's more that's really interesting. There's a whole other layer to this story that's so interesting. It's not just the Jewish-Roman dimension here, not just that relationship. It's the fact that it's not just a Roman soldier it's a centurion. There's some things you got to know about a centurion. A centurion is in charge, like his name says, he's in charge of a century. This is something about a hundred soldiers, give or take, depending on the time in history. He's in charge of about a hundred soldiers. And the centurions, historians say, centurions are like the backbone of the entire Roman army. They're like the professionals in the Roman army primarily because they are in charge of discipline. These are guys that rise through the rank and they're the ones that hold down the discipline of what is known throughout history as one of the most severely disciplined armies in history and it's the centurions that hold down the discipline. They have full unilateral authority to inflict corporal punishment on anyone in their charge of anyone in their century that has gotten out of line. More specifically, the centurions were known for this staff, this rod. It's called a vetus in Latin. And it, that, that means like reed or like cane. And it was like something between like a staff and a club. And it almost became the symbol of the centurion, this reed that they would hold. Because they would personally beat a soldier in their charge if they got out of line. In fact, there's stories, and they're, they're known to be kind of brutal and almost savage. In fact, there are stories of centurions who would beat one of their own soldiers until their vetus, their reed, broke, and then they'd ask for another one and finish the job. Okay, these are kind of brutal characters. They're not guys that are just appointed. You're not going to find like a soft centurion. These are guys that rise through the rank. They are, they are proud of their discipline. Their discipline is the symbol of what they do. And this is how severe their discipline was. If someone disobeyed an order, even if that disobedience led to success or to something good, that disobedience was still considered a capital crime. You could be executed for it. Okay, there was one, uh, you've heard the word, you ever heard the word decimate? Like they've, well, they were decimated. They were like annihilated. You ever heard that word decimated? That actually comes from a practice in the Roman army that was somewhat rare, but it happened. If a cohort got, that's a group of centuries, if a cohort got out of line, one of the ways they would discipline them is that they would decimate them. In other words, deci, like 10, they would divide them up into groups of 10. This is this maybe mutinous cohort. They would divide them up into groups of 10. Then they'd go to each group. They'd cast lots for one of them. They'd set that one aside. And that group of 10 had to beat their own guy to death. And that's how they'd pull the entire cohort back in line without killing all of them. Okay, you got to understand the, the vibe in the Roman army. Okay, you tracking with me? This is a centurion. He rose to these ranks. This is a, this, he, he leads about 100 guys, but his authority level over the other guys is significant. He gets paid somewhere like 15 to 16 times 
what the other guys he's commanding gets, get paid. So for example, like if you're not a math person, like I'm not a math person, if like the regular soldier gets paid like $20,000, okay, like the entry-level soldier, he's getting paid upwards of $300,000. You're tracking like this is a high level over these other guys. He has authority to beat them into submission. This guy, he's going to be kind of a rough, brutal, battle-hardened individual, He's going to have wealth. He obviously, he's donated to their synagogue. He's kind of a big shot in this area probably. He's, he has sent, he's used his pull. He sent the leaders of Capernaum to go talk to Jesus and ask Jesus to heal his servant. Now it's notable that he doesn't come to Jesus himself. And it's easy to read through this story and to see, well, he... He's not going to lower himself to go talk to some crazy rabbi that's running around rural Israel. He, I mean, he's going to send the big shots to go get him to ask him to do this errand. But listen to what happens next because this next wrinkle in the story, this changes everything. This is remarkable. Verse 6. And Jesus went with them When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Did you catch that? That just sends a whole different dimension to how he's engaging Jesus. He, he, first of all, he calls him Lord. Now, here's the thing. We're so used to hearing Jesus called Lord Jesus Lord Jesus Christ, we're so used to Jesus being called Lord that it's not, we just kind of read right over the fact that a centurion calls him Lord because yes, there's a sacred sense that we refer to God as Lord, but in this time period, there's a very non-sacred secular usage of the word Lord and it's something that an inferior would call a superior. It's not just being polite. It's, he's not just saying, hey, Mr. Jesus, It's not just being polite. It's probably a little more than calling him sir. It's more like calling him master. Okay, this is unbelievable that a Roman is saying this to a Jewish rabbi, let alone a a centurion saying this to Jesus. He calls him Lord. He says, I'm not worthy to have you come into my house. And then he tells him, This is why I didn't come to you personally. See, it's the exact opposite. It wasn't that he's like, I'm too much of a big deal. Hey, um, I'm going to send my people to talk to your people, and I'm going to call over the, you're going to see the kind of pull I have. You're going to want to do what I ask you to do. No, he says, I'm not worthy to even come into your presence. I'm not worthy to have you into my home, so I sent people to talk to you. You see, like the level of respect he's giving Jesus is unbelievable. And then he says this. I know that you can just heal him from there. He says, 
I know how it works. I understand authority. I mean, a centurion of all people gets this. He says, I have people over me. They tell me to do something. I do it. I have people that I lead, and I say to a soldier, I need you to go do this. They go. I say to another soldier, come here. And he comes. There's not questions. I'm not pleading with anybody. I'm not saying, come on, guys, really, can we just kind of get an order here? No. They do it. I'm holding a reed in my hand. Okay, I understand authority. He says, I know you can heal right there from where you're standing. You don't even have to come to my house. You don't even have to lower yourself to come into my house. You can do it from there. I want you to see this is remarkable what he has put together in his mind about Jesus. He's heard rumors about Jesus healing, but how does Jesus typically heal? Someone comes up to him and Jesus says, it's a leper, and throws himself at Jesus' feet, and Jesus touches him on the shoulder, and the man's healed. It's a blind man that he's, he, he's before Jesus, and he, he's asking for healing, and Jesus takes him aside, and he spits into some mud, and he touches his eyes, and he's healed. It's another person, he touches his tongue. I mean, it's Jesus having these, looking into their eyes and having this moment where they're healed. But this is a whole nother level. I mean, it's one thing to say, okay, Jesus is there, he's with them, he's touching them, he's looking at them, and they're healed. The centurion has put the, taken that data, put it together in his mind to realize if Jesus has the power to do that, he's taken it to a whole nother level. Then Jesus must also have the power to heal someone over a distance, Someone he's never seen before, doesn't even know, doesn't know their name, is not even sure what the sickness is. You see, like, that's an entire different level that this man has put together about who Jesus is. You tracking with me? All right, here's what has happened here. This centurion has put together something about Jesus that almost no one else around Jesus right now has realized. Look what Jesus says next. Verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. I mean, I think it probably takes a lot to wow Jesus. And Jesus is like, wow. I, I I haven't even seen faith like this in Israel who has all the stories about prophets and Moses and Elijah and King David and killing giants and being swallowed by whales and parting the Red Sea and, and all I mean I all the people who know all that, I, I haven't even seen faith in Israel like what this guy has. See, this centurion is an inc- I mean, there's something really incredible happening here. There's something he's put together in his brain that he's realized about Jesus. He's been amazed by Jesus. He's heard the stories, the amazing stories about Jesus, and he realizes Jesus has authority. 
And that's something completely different. Okay, there's a lot of things that can amaze us, okay? I don't know if you've ever been really, really amazed by like a magician. You ever seen like a really good magician? We had a great magician here at camp a couple weeks ago that like blew our minds, okay? But I'll I'll never forget um, one time I was was sitting with Rebecca at a restaurant and um, all of a sudden a guy walks up to our table and he says, yes, the, the restaurant's hired me. I'm just kind of doing some, some magic tricks here. Can I do a, a trick for you? And I'm thinking, okay, this is odd. Um, I hope the restaurant's hired you and you're not just some random person, but why not? And so he proceeded to do a card trick, okay? And I, I, I've seen a lot of card tricks, you know, the kind where the, you pick a card and then they put it in the right part of the deck again, okay? Like, I, I'm, I'm watching for that kind of nonsense, okay? I'm, I, I'm watching you, buddy. I know what you're going to try and pull, okay? But this card trick, like, it was so amazing, it, like, freaked me out, okay? He says, he says to Rebecca, he says, okay, I just want you to pick, a, in your mind, I want you to pick a card out, and, and you don't have to say it out loud. I just want you to think of any card that's in the deck, and I want you to tell him. And so something random. And so she reaches, she speaks in my ear. She says, the Ten of Diamonds. I'm like, okay, got it. And he didn't hear. And he does all these things with the cards, and he doesn't ask any more questions. And like, I don't remember exactly how it played out, but it was something like, you know, he's doing all these things, and all of a sudden he pulls out a card and says, is this your card? And it was the Ten of Diamonds. And I'm like, get out of here. Just walk away. I don't even know. And then he's, I mean, it was something like, he's like, all right, now reach in your pocket. And there was a ten of diamonds in my pocket, okay? And then he's like, and look at the tattoo on your back. And I'm like, how is there a tattoo of the ten of diamonds? My back, okay? And it was, I mean, it was crazy, all right? And it was just like, he, it was one of those things, okay, that I was like, I don't know how you did that, but just get away from me. You're, you're scaring me right now, all right? Now, that, that's a magician. He's not really done anything magical. He's, he's not manipulating nature, He's really manipulating, a magician manipulates us. He's doing it sleight of hand. He's making us not understand how he did something. He's manipulating us. Okay, that's one way of being amazed. There's another way that's like, um, it's like science and technology. Sometimes that's really amazing. It's like, uh, for example, Bluetooth. I still cannot figure out what in the world Bluetooth is. And Rebecca recently got me some Bluetooth headphones. And they're just sitting on the, I don't want to touch those things. Okay, I don't know how that works. How is information traveling through the air? Okay, I don't get it. But that's what is a scientist, they are just harnessing nature. They're not changing nature. They're harnessing nature and doing amazing things. So one is a magician manipulates us, not nature. A scientist is harnessing nature. But then there's what Jesus is doing. He's manipulating nature. Here's what the, the rest of this crowd, they, he's probably somewhere in this mix. I don't know if he's just got some kind of magical thing where he touches people or he's got some kind of way he heals people, but the centurion, because of his life experience about authority, he gets it. You, I, it's very simple to him. He says, like, I command people, they do what I say. People command me, I do what they say. You're, I, I get it. You, you have authority. You command nature. You have authority over people's molecules. So it doesn't matter if you've never met the guy. It doesn't matter. The guy doesn't have to be in front of you. You don't have to touch him. You don't have to say, it's not a certain mantra that you say. In fact, Jesus leaves you no ability to look for some kind of pattern. He heals people in all different kinds of ways. And even here, he heals from a distance. You notice that Jesus didn't even say, wow, that's remarkable faith. He's healed. He says, wow, that's remarkable, and walks away. And they go back and he's healed. 
He realizes this guy, he's put it all together. If he can heal there, he can heal my, this guy right here, my, my servant who I love in this household. He can heal his molecules. It doesn't matter if he knows him. It doesn't matter if he's seen him. It doesn't matter if he knows the ailment. It's an authority issue. He has authority over this man's body. And then he goes to the next appropriate level. And if this man has authority over all nature, I'm not even worthy to be in his presence. He's my Lord. I'm not even worthy to come before his feet and ask. See, there's something so powerful that we see here about who Jesus is. You know, we so commonly, we think of Jesus and we think of, oh, Jesus, the meek and mild and he's compassionate and he's just like a, a shepherd to little lambs and, you know, he's just the soft-spoken, kind of mild-mannered guy. And there's a lot of that's true because of how Jesus entered into humanity. He came humble. But let's not forget, he's also in charge. He's the authority of all that is. He's in control. He is the one. He, he is, there's no centurion or otherwise who's the big shot if Jesus is there. Okay, in fact, this is how it says it in the Bible. This is how it's described. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Listen to what it's described. It's going to be up here on the screens. This is talking about Jesus. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? He's Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ, he is the boss, he is the master, he is Lord. There will one day be no one that stands before Jesus like this. There will be no one, it doesn't matter how powerful they were on, on earth, how much influence they wielded, it doesn't matter what they did in battle, it doesn't matter what they've ever done, it doesn't matter how much pride, how much arrogance they have, one day every knee will buckle before Jesus Christ as the authority of the universe. And here's what so often happens for us. We're so, we, we're so moved by the compassion of Jesus. And his mercy, Jesus, the friend of sinners. That sometimes we let our familiarity turn into flippancy. And we forget if he is the Lord, he's not just, oh, he deserves honor and my singing and my praise. My life is at your command. Every single part of my life, you're the master of it. I offer to you every single part. Sometimes there's a disconnect. Yes, Jesus, you died for me, and yes, and there's, but there's this flippancy. But, and, and sometimes we, we get this idea that, okay, yes, Jesus, I love you, and then I'm going to just go do whatever I want with my life. You know, there may be some that are here and... and you say, look, I, I get it. I understand that Jesus is the Savior. I understand. I understand that Jesus, he came down to earth. The Son of God died on the cross, was crucified, and he bled out and he suffered and died to wash away my sins. He's my Savior. 
but there's this old kind of worn-out phrase that's been used in the church for generations, but it's so, it's so important and it's so right on. It's Jesus may be your Savior, but is He your Savior and Lord? Because sometimes we say, yeah, Jesus, He saves me for heaven. He saved me from, from my sin, and I'm just going to go. I'm glad to have that, Jesus. I'll come back and talk to you again when I need to sprinkle some religion in my life. But do you realize if he's your savior, the only way that one man could pay for the sins of all is if he's more than one man, he has to be the son of God. So the only way you could be saved is if he's actually God in the flesh, which means the only way you could be saved is if he's also the one that is your Lord, that deserve your total submission and your total surrender. He has to be, if he's your savior, he has to also be your Lord. And maybe for some of you, the encounter that you are are encountering this morning with this passage is you've realized, I've made Jesus my savior. But is he really my Lord? Have I taken every part of my life and said, it's it's yours to control? Or is it, thank you for being my savior, I'll check in with you later, I'm going to go live my life. Is it everything's under your control? My time, my goals, my plans, my relationships, my finances, my sexuality. It's yours to command. Every day, it's yours to command. How do you want me to live? And for some of you, maybe the encounter you need to have this morning is maybe he's your savior, but is he your Lord? Is he ruling over your life? Now, there's others of us here, and maybe you're saying, no, I got that. Yeah, that's a good one, Savior and Lord. We need to hear that, and I get that. Of course, he's my Savior, and of course, he's my Lord. But here's what we do. If we know that he's supposed to be our Lord, then, then we're not going to say, yes, I'm doing this thing, and I'm, I'm doing this in disobedience to Jesus. No, we wouldn't have the guts to say that. But what we do instead is we t- find a way to consider this thing we know deep down we're not supposed to do, I find a way to make this okay. I rationalize this one thing. There's this part in my life that deep down I know Jesus doesn't want me to do. But I've talked myself into believing it's okay because I just want to do it. Maybe if that's you this morning, maybe what just happened is a chord just got struck inside. And a battle is just now starting inside your heart. Because there's something that you're debating and there's something that you're like, I shouldn't be doing this, but no, I think it's okay, but I shouldn't be doing it. But no, I think it's okay because of this, this, this. And I have to, if you have to continually reconvince yourself that it's okay, it's time to stop and go to your master, go to your Lord, go to the one who's the boss over your life and say, Jesus, I'm not going to try and convince myself this is okay anymore. I am surrendered to you. And most likely it's something he's asking you to surrender if he's still knocking on, your, on the door of your heart. Let me ask you this question. If you're like, no, I don't know. I think this is probably okay. Then if, it's, if you're that sure, then you'll have the courage to take this issue and go talk to another godly person and get their input. Are you scared to talk to someone else about it? Because that's probably pretty convicting that you know deep down in your heart that Jesus doesn't want you to do that. If you're saying, look, no, I'm just simply that desperate. I want to know what Jesus wants me to do. Then go to a godly person, not someone who's just going to tell you what you want to hear. Go to a godly person who will tell you the truth. 
your ministry leader, your community group leader, a staff person you have a relationship with, go to a, a godly friend that will sit down and will tell you the honest truth because he's your Savior and he's your Lord. And the most important thing we could do is say, Jesus, I am acknowledging the authority you already have in the universe. And I'm surrendering to your authority. Can we use this as a litmus test for a second? You say, look, I don't know. Am I really, do I really appreciate the authority of Jesus? Here's a, here's a litmus test. You'll know if you're really grasping the authority of Jesus by how you pray. For starters, if you say, look, my, my prayer life, it's just been, I haven't been praying a lot lately. I don't pray as often as I should. Here, here's the reason. We, if we could realize that Jesus has authority over everything, like whatever your big concern in your life, whether relational, financial, at work, in your family, with a friendship, whatever that concern is, do you realize Jesus has authority over it? Man, if I really appreciate that he has authority over everything that concerns me in my life, of course I would bring it to him. It's not like, well, I'll talk to you, Jesus, when it's something that concerns you. No, everything is under his authority. Why wouldn't we pray? Maybe if I'm not bringing these things before Jesus, it might be because I'm not appreciating how much authority he has over the universe. You know, the second thing that's kind of a litmus test to how do I respond to the authority of Jesus, if I'm getting flippant in my familiarity, it might be how I respond to how he's answering my prayers. Because I might be saying, yes, okay, Jesus, I know that you're the authority, so I'm presenting these requests to you. But then he answers that, and I'm like, how could you answer that like that? Why would you do that to me? And I'm angry. And maybe I have enough faith to believe that he's in charge of the results, but maybe somehow because I'm mad at how he's responded, I feel like I'm in charge of him. And he's gone against how I requested but if he has the authority over the results, then he also has the authority over me, and I must just accept in faith how he responds to my prayers. It might be a, a litmus test of understanding how, the, how I appreciate the authority of Jesus by how my prayer posture is. What do you mean by prayer posture? I mean literally and symbolically. I mean, if I'm always like, well, yeah, I pray a little bit when I've got the radio on, I'm driving to work. Oh, yeah, I didn't pray together. Let me just toss up some prayers to the one who is the authority over the entire universe. What's my prayer posture? Are you saying I need to be down on my knees with my eyes closed on my face? Maybe sometimes. He's given us the freedom to pray at any moment. I might be in a meeting and I'm praying, but, it, but he hasn't given me the freedom to be flippant and how I handle Jesus, the authority over all. Maybe my prayers, what I pray for, how I respond to his, how I react to his responses to my prayers, and even my prayer posture mentally, emotionally, maybe even physically, reveals how I look at Jesus as my authority. Maybe this morning we need to have an encounter with Jesus, our authority. And maybe for some of you, it's time to let go of whatever that is you're holding on to. And maybe this is the encounter, the thing you've been praying for. You've been asking for help. You've been asking for answers. And maybe Jesus is just simply saying, you know the answer. Now it's time to surrender. You know, some of us may be here and we may be really wrestling with the idea of Jesus as an authoritarian because maybe in your life, you had a really authoritarian person. And it's hard to associate Jesus with that. 
Maybe it was a parent or a grandparent that was religious, and they were really rigid. I mean, they were just, and they ruled by fear and intimidation, and there were this, this tough authoritarian, or maybe you went to like a religious school when you were growing up, and there was like a teacher or a principal or a nun or someone who was just really, really strict and authoritarian, and it's hard to imagine Jesus like that. But there's something that's in this passage that you've got to see to understand how he wields his authority. Did you notice the centurion, the one who holds a staff, a reed, a cane in his hand? He holds it in his hand. He says, I get it, Jesus. You're like me. But see, the irony of this passage is that this is how Jesus uses his authority. He came down to earth. Did he come down to earth with, with this cane, this reed in his hand? To punish the disobedient? No, he came as the authority. He came to be punished for our disobedience. In fact, when he was suffering, the gospel accounts say, Roman soldiers gathered around him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. And you know what they put in his hand? A reed or a cane. They put it in his hand as mock authority and pretended to bow down. And then you know what they did? They took the reed out of his hands and they beat him with it. What kind of authority does Jesus have? What kind of authoritarian is he? He's the authority overall, but he loves us so much he took the beating for us. So whatever he's encountering you on this morning, do you understand it's out of his love? Your disobedience will be leading to destruction and he loves you so much he's calling you away from that out of his love. He's calling you to himself. He's our savior and he's our Lord. Maybe some of us need to do business with God this morning. Would you just take a second and bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Some of you, you may need to to take a second and just pray, God, I I just, you're my Lord. I'm going to make you my Lord. I need your strength. I need to make you the, the Lord in this area of my life. And if that's you, take a second to do that now. But maybe some of you are here and you say, look, I need to make Jesus my Savior. I need to acknowledge he, he loves me that much. He died to take away my sins. I want to accept him as my Savior and Lord today. I want to do that this morning. Then I want to lead you in a simple prayer. Would you just pray this with me right there in your heart between you and God? Just pray this simply with God. Say, Jesus, thank you for all you did to save me. You took the punishment for my disobedience that I deserved. Thank you for loving me that much. I want to make you my Savior. And I want to make you my Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out our other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call us at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.